Well, it's good to be here. Thank you for being here this morning. Welcome to all who are watching uh, us online. We're going to I know I, I say this a lot, but we're, we're going to be on one of my favorite passages in the story of David. This is favorite passage number eight, by the way. Uh, so that's just, yeah, there'll be more favorites. Um, but first, let's pray. Then I'll read these verses uh, before us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercies. I pray you would teach us who you are, what you have done, who we are and how we should live. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This is, uh, account comes immediately following the story of David and Goliath. As soon as he finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul, and Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that, he was, that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of the women came out of the all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines with songs of joy and with musical instruments and the women sang to one another as they celebrated Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands and Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can they have, he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while Saul was playing the lyre, while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and he hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the Lord, before the people. And David had success in all of his undertakings. For the Lord was with him, and when Saul saw that he had saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Amen. Well, this uh, sermon will work better if you take a few moments to survey your kingdom. Every one of you has a domain. Every one of you has a calendar. Every one of you has a place, a large home or a small apartment. Every one of you has um, a dollar or a million dollars. Everyone has friends. Most have jobs or children, which are 
very job-like without the pay part. You each have dominion that's around and outside of you, but you also have dominion that's inside of you. It's the dominion of your mind, of the words that you use, of the things that you love. So survey your kingdom for a moment. Catalog as specifically as you can, whether grand or perhaps even more importantly, the small things over which you have authority. You have those in your mind now, then here's the message for today. The only way to love a king is to give him your kingdom. The only way to love a king is to give him all of every one of those things that you have any measure of authority over at work or home or heart. So we're going to look about at Saul, about how to love your own kingdom, and then we're going to look at Jonathan about how to love a king, and then we're going to have some lessons for royal siblings like us who will never get a throne in that way. So let's take a look at at Saul. Saul is the uh, first recorded frenemy in the history of the world. He is kind of likes David, but he's threatened by David. And we're not going to spend perhaps a lot of time with Saul today, but we are going to see that one of the marks of loving your own kingdom is that you have a selfish affection for your Savior. And that's exactly what Saul does. Saul by the way, knows he's been rejected. Now it's been pretty clear. It's been made abundantly clear to uh, Saul and everyone around him. The word uh, about Samuel's dismissal of Saul certainly hasn't been contained, you know, between the former king and the prophet. Everyone knows, but um, Saul won't accept it. He's under discipline, but he will not accept it. In this way, Saul becomes, as we saw before it, an emblem and a picture of all the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. We're we're all people that had uh, a royal heritage, and we still have some kind of dominion, but, uh, you know, we're holding on to that. And Saul sees an opportunity, uh, even as he knows he's lost his kingdom, to shore it up, and he'll shore it up for a good long time. He sees that in David. He's curious about who David is. Um, He's appreciative of David, and he promotes him. Um, If you ask me, about my conversion to Christianity. When I became a Christian, I'll have to ask you if you mean the first time or the second time. And uh, because the first time, by the way, that only happens once. I think I'm on record here as acknowledging that. But uh, the first time I saw, uh, I saw a useful helper, even after the second time. That's always part of how we see Christ. But you can see that the selfish affection manifests itself in a very specific um, expression in this passage. We're told that Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. It's clear that although David had been ministering his music to Saul earlier, clearly from the story of of Goliath, he was allowed to go home uh, during certain seasons or missions or what have you. And And Saul realized that that he needed to keep this warrior close to him so he wouldn't let him go. It's interesting. The the word is the word give. He won't give him. You you can only give what you think you have, right? 
And so the king won't give David away. He wants to keep him. Saul wants David's service, but he does not want his sovereignty. And that's one of the marks of um, loving your own kingdom. You want the servant Christ, but not the sovereign Christ. You, you want the king and all of his royal resources to be applied for you and your dukedom, which I think is actually a thing. I think dukedoms are a thing. Or your weekend, or your money, or your reputation, or your friendships, or your sexuality, or your study. Think again about the kingdom you surveyed, which maybe you didn't know you had. Whatever you have authority over, you have in some sense a kingdom. And do you want Christ to serve that or to be sovereign over that very thing? Saul needs David's strength to help with his weakness. And of course, that's something we all need Christ and the son of David to help us with. When, when we are weak, he is strong. That, that's fine. Saul, in a way, gets that much right. Okay, Here's someone who can do more than he can. But um, when we try to contain, well, that's when we become um, frenemies. And it doesn't work because the selfish affection that Saul has for David, this, this useful warrior, starts to become a selfish infection in him. It starts to corrupt him. We've noticed that, that his inward bent has already uh, tortured his mind. And we can see in this passage that, that it only gets worse. You can see how um, holding on to your kingdom is a way to really hold on to your heart and turn it in towards yourself. And how do we see that in this passage? Well, the first thing we've already noticed is that um, he's covetous of David. He wants David close in. He, he wants to leverage David's anointing and David's gifting to get the things that only David can get. In this case, he beat the, king, he beat the giant and he's going to beat some other folks. So there's part of our devotion to Christ and we, it's just still here. You know, it's still with me. It's still in you. There, there's a covetous reality to it that we need to understand is is uh, related to our dependence on him, but, but it's a perversion of our dependence on him. We, we, we need his help because, well, look around. Look around at us. Of course we need his help. But, but then we turn that into something um, sinful and unhealthy. We covet him. We want him inappropriately in our service. And then um, right, right after that, this is what happens. And I can see it pastorally all the time. Uh, and I see it in my own heart. When, when he's not living up to our covetous desires of what he should do, you know, let's list out our kingdom again, our money, our time, our schedule, our family, our children, our parents, our siblings, our friends, uh, our workplace. When he doesn't do that, um, well, we get a little angry. And, and Saul's anger uh, is exhibited in this uh, wonderful scene where this rejected king is uh, angry because the king that he's trying to use is cooler than he is. 
And he's like, ten thousands? Well, uh, and me thousands? You can translate that into your own world uh, about the honor that you're really trying to gather for yourself. It's uh, the, the, the praise and the accomplishment that you want to redound to you, the, the comfort and the consolation and um, the reputation that we all want, the dominion that we have, and, and we have this spirit in us, if we follow Christ, that always wants that for him. You know, the, the spirit, we might say, sings the same thing to us. Oh, you've done a few things, but they've all been done in Christ. You, you've made some progress, but it's all been done by him. You've conquered a few sins by faith, but Christ has conquered every sin by his righteousness. And then we're soon become uh, envious of him. Saul eyed David from that day on. And from envy, we become sorrowful. So much of my depression and sorrow and anxiety has been born out of um, the fact that, that God won't do what I tell him. Now, that's not how it feels, and that's not what it's done to my mind. and my. But that's really often at the root of it. I'm not ready to accept that God is better at my happiness than I am. That, that it would be better if I gave up my kingdom. If, it would be better if I didn't get what I wanted. It would be better if I died to myself. I've been praying for well, my first prayers. My wife's watching this, so this is risky to say. It's not about her, but my first earnest prayers were that Mary Love in second grade would like me. She didn't like me. She liked Brad Stout. Brad's okay. We went all the way through college together and we're staying fraternity. I never got over it. Well, I'm over it now. But the point is, how many times has God not done what you pleaded with him to do? I would imagine... There's tens of thousands of times represented in this room over the last five decades when God has not done what you asked and pleaded with him to do. And I imagine that we've all been sad and grumpy and sullen and finally angry and fearful about it just like, just like Saul is here. He ends this. He's in fearful awe of David. Mixed up with his anger for David mixed up with his envy of David, mixed up with his covetous desire for David. And that's what it's like. That's what it's like to follow God. And I don't doubt that if you feel those things that there's real faith in you because we're, we're all mixed up bags of all kinds of everything in there. But, but what's one of the things that's probably at the root of it is that you love your kingdom. And I love my kingdom. So you have these choices. You can, you can, be, uh, you can be Frodo, Samurais, or Gollum. That's your choices. Who do you want to be? Uh, I default to Gollum. I'd like to really be Samwise on my better days. 
But, but that's hard unless we start to learn our next point, which is how to love a king. The first way we love a king is through our awe. And you can see that in um, Jonathan. After they finished talking, uh, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. So let's, let's remember what they were talking about. Uh, David was standing there, uh, pardon the visual image, but David is standing there holding Goliath's head in his hand, talking to King Saul about his victory and um, about how he, he had, uh, where he was from and what his family from before that. Remember this, Jonathan would have been with his father in the royal circle when David told all the stories about God's faithfulness, about lions and tigers and bears and all those things. He would have heard all that and he, then he would have seen, he would have seen David take on Goliath. He would have watched the whole thing. He would have heard the message. He would have seen David's triumph. He would have seen the contrast between David and his father. He would have seen all those things. That's what Jonathan is a witness to, but it's very important to understand that Jonathan not only saw all these great things about David that put him in awe of David, but he also, and this is always related to our awe, um, he also saw something about himself. What did he see? He saw that he had spent 40 days This man who was a formidable warrior, Jonathan proves to be. He spent 40 days sitting still while Goliath mocked God and his people. Have you ever sat silent? Have you ever failed so boldly as Jonathan did? I I did once. I went to my sister, lost a child, and I got there and found that I was doing the... uh, part of the service and there was this minister there who uh, was a fine guy an older dude who had uh, it was clear they didn't have a really firm grasp on on scripture and its message but he was a nice kind man who had loved my family well and he made a passing comment to me about being glad I was Presbyterian um, because you know basically I wasn't an evangelical in his mind. He was Presbyterian too. And my sister was there and her, her mother-in-law was there. And I was young and I just let it go. That was a long time ago. I still regret that moment. Now, later on, I, I preached at the service and I did a, did a better job preaching than I did in that moment. But you have moments like that. We all have moments like that. Jesus never had a moment like that, especially when it was time for him to bear good witness for us before Pilate and Herod and everyone else. We must see Christ as exalted high above in every virtue and gifting. Far above, infinitely above. We we must see him and then compare ourselves so that we can be in awe of him and not of us. 
The fact of the matter is, we're all blinded by our own brilliance. We're all impressed by our own impressiveness. We're all moved by our own beauty. Courageous by our own strength until we get alongside someone like Christ. So the first thing is to be in awe. The second thing is um, to, to adore. He loved him. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as himself or as his own soul. This is a beautiful word. This is where um, our love for Christ becomes um, you know, much more full than our mere reliance upon him or our affirmation of all the words he said. It, it is when we are bound to him. It's not a seam that's being spoken of here. All right, It's not sown. It's not that... It's not that Jonathan's soul was sewn up next to David like a seam in, in this jacket. It's that it was woven together and enmeshed and intertwined and infused with David. And that is what I long for my soul to be with Christ and yours as well. To be so enmeshed with him and bound to him. That everything I love, I love because it's of him. And everything I want, I want because it's in him. And everything that comforts me, brings me comfort from him. Everything I do, I do for him. Because I'm in awe of him. And so stunned that one like him would be with one like me. And so it is for you. We, we, if we're to love a king, this king, you with me, you must be amazed that he would hang out with you. That he would tell the world that you're his friend. That he would put his spirit in you. Your soul should be enmeshed enmeshed with him. Another John put it this way, he must be, become greater and I must become less. Jesus said, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. That's what it means to, to love him. Be in love with Christ, the Christ of the Bible, not the Christ of your imagination or the Christ that your workmates will respect or understand or the Christ that lets you do what you want, or have the ministry that I wanted, and all the things that we want. No, no, be in, be in love with the Christ that died for you, that the Scriptures present to you, and just be amazed that He loves you back. He loves you better. He loves you more. And then pledge your allegiance to Him. So, it's awe, adoration, and allegiance. You can see it in this passage. Um, the earliest first readers would have known exactly what was happening. Um, he makes a covenant with, with, a, with, a, with a man who's been anointed to take over the kingdom that he's going to get, or would get. 
He makes a covenant with him. That, that is, he publicly formalizes his allegiance. He declares to the world his allegiance to David. And make no mistake that the people around him would have understood the significance of this. His relationship with his father will never be the same. His future will never be the same. Because he's in love with someone who is far greater than him and he knows that he will not be king. He won't be king. There's a story. We're just going to say it's true for the sake of this sermon. But Henry VIII came in and his noblemen stood up and, uh, and he said, he said, sit down, I'm not the Lord, Jesus. Which is interesting if it came from Henry VIII. He was not a great guy. But one of his, one of his noblemen, it's reported, said, indeed, your majesty, you are not or we would have fallen on our faces. Well, fall on your face. In abdication, because that's what Jonathan does next. The, the beautiful, the heart of this account. Jonathan does something uh, symbolically to express his covenant that can become, if you review all of those dominions you have, if you surveyed your kingdom, which might be a good exercise to do, just write out everything you can decide and do, no matter how small it is. Well, here's what he does. He takes off his robe. That is a garment that was worn, it's often spoken of for priests. It's spoken of about royalty. It's used in significant ways. Um, this word throughout this story, but also earlier in the, in the first five books of the Bible. It's a significant emblem, uh, which would have demarked him from the you know, the rabble that was out there, you know, in the camp waiting for somebody to take on Goliath. So he gives this to David. You understand what he's, what he's doing is he's, he's giving his honor. He's given his distinguishing emblem to, to David. He's given his rank to David, and then he gives... Then he gives more to David. So he gives his honor, and then he gives all of his power to David. You can see he, he hands over um, his sword, everything that is, has dominion, everything that expresses his strength. You know, you find out later in the book that only David, only David and Saul had iron weapons or, or metal weapons. So he's given them this this distinguishing mark of his power and rank and authority. Do you, do you see, it's, it's really rather simple. Uh, to, to love the king, you, you're in awe of him, you, you adore him, you pledge allegiance to him, and then you abdicate to him. So what honor and what strength do you have and do I have? Well, give them to Jesus. Take them off and give them to Jesus into his service. You know, interestingly, David, as you might remember from the last story, was already given some kish armor. Remember that Saul's like, here, put this on. And he's like, and he just didn't, it didn't work for him. But interestingly, this armor he keeps, not insignificant, is the fact that he was also given Jonathan's honor and his robe. So go back to your survey and find out what honor you have. And what power you have, it need not be great. Because guess what? 
let's say you run a big old thing. Let's say you're a big deal. That's not a big deal relative to God. He does not think you're a big deal, and he doesn't think your big company is a big deal. So let's say you have a little deal. Let's say you're wondering, well, what in the world, what in the world do I have? Well, you have something. You have the choices you will make this afternoon. And I would say that in faith, God thinks those are big deals. If you act of those in faith. Here's another story about a king, Louis XIV this time, who, who organized his entire, um, wrote his entire funeral. I am not going to write my entire funeral, although I am picking hymns to be sung. That's as far as I'm going to go. But I, I really won't be there to know if they sang them. So I don't know. But uh, Louis XIV had this whole thing orchestrated in this giant golden um, lampstand. And he had the casket, golden casket, put right in this place where the sun was uh, going to shine on it at the time. I mean, it was all, it was all planned out, uh, which is a very Louis XIV thing to do. And, and after the whole service, when it was time for the homily, Bishop Masson came up and uh, he snuffed the candle out. Now, this did happen. And he said, only God is great. So that means, Mike, you're not great. It means you're not great. It means only God is great. It means give up your kingdom. That's how you love the king. The only way to love the king is to give him every single thing you have. Every bit of honor. Every decision. Every feeling. Every day. Every night. Every task at work. Every moment in your garden. Every conversation with your friends. You realize that you have a king. It's not a spiritual metaphor. You actually have a king which makes you a subject. So let me just take a few more, a few more lessons from here that for royal siblings. Cause so here's where we are. We all have our little somethings and we need to learn to give them to the king. And the, the first thing that we need to remember is there is no spiritual Switzerland. You don't get to be the Swiss in World War II. You just don't get to do that. By the way, here's a little secret. Guess what the, guess what the Swiss got during World War II? They got all the, all the Nazi gold. So, so, you know, they learned too. And uh, they, they provided some good service for the world in their neutrality. But it's impossible to be neutral. And you can't be neutral here. Kiss the sun, Psalm 2 says, unless he be angry with you. You, you don't get to be neutral. There is no third place you will eventually throw a spear at him. Maybe it'd be a nice spear, a friendly spear. Maybe a sophisticated spear. But you will either love the servant or you'll love the sovereign. Jesus said, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before the, my Father in heaven. It's that terrifying and that simple. Jesus wants his kingdom back from us. And we can't be neutral. The best way to do that is to um, see Christ in ourself clearly. I won't spend um, a lot of time on this because we've already seen it in, in uh, Jonathan. 
but reflect on moments like the one I shared with you when, when you know full well Christ would have handled that moment with courage and love and faithfulness and you did not. You see him and then you see yourself. And then you see that he loves you anyway. You, you will always, because I know I will always, I will always want my kingdom. Every day I want my kingdom. I must remind myself always of how great he is and how ungreat, non-great, anti-great I am. What a small and passing thing. So the next two things come together and then we'll, we'll close out our morning. Watch the, the fulcrum. Watch the balance between your delight in Christ and your envy of him. Well, you delight in Christ when you see him exalted, when you suffer for his sake, when you're an outcast for his sake, when you obey him, when you, when you see him have dominion over your own heart and life. That, I mean, I hope and I know that this room is full of people that have all manner of memories about doing that. You might say to yourself, well, I don't really envy Christ. Well, we envy Christ every time we disobey him. Perhaps we should say we begrudge him. Perhaps we would say our heart gets dull to him. Our heart resists him. Because when we're at that moment, we're saying, Oh, I envy the dominion that Christ has over my money, my time, my reputation, my, my view of sexuality, my view of politics, my, my view of entertainment, how I behave, how I speak, what I want. If you're exploring Christianity and you're here, I, um, I would tell you giving these things up is a delight once it's done, but it's hard to do it. But it is the call of the Christian. Because what we'll find out is Jesus is a much better king than we are kings and queens. He's much better at our happiness than we are. He's much, much better. So um, survey your kingdom. And if you love the king, give it to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercies. I bless you and thank you and ask you to um, help us all, surely me included, to um, hand over whatever moments, whatever relationships, whatever we have. It will be hard for us. Our knuckles will hold tightly to it. Pry our hands open. And let us find on the other side of relinquishing all these things that are so small that they become so great and rich that no one ever gave up anything that, who did not receive a hundredfold in return from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.